Welcome to the Explorer's Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds. On the morning of June 8, 1924, 37-year-old mountaineer George Mallory and his climbing partner, 22-year-old Andrew Sandy Irvin, left their camp with a camera and oxygen tanks to attempt to be the first humans to summit Mount Everest. They were last seen on their ascent, a few hundred meters away from the summit, though it is not known if they reached it because they never made it back to camp, and their bodies and the camera, which potentially held proof of a summit success, were never found. It was a global news story at the time, and has haunted the imaginations of mountaineers, explorers, and historians for nearly a century. In addition to the unknowns of how they perished, There is also the big question as to whether or not Mallory and Irvin were the first human beings to reach the highest point on Earth, and there was little progress in answering these questions until a 1999 expedition which famously located the body of George Mallory and discovered new clues to help solve the mystery. Tonight at the roundtable, we are honored to have two of the explorers from the 1999 expedition, Jochen Hemlib and Tom Pollard. Jochen is a historian, explorer, and writer whose research and detective work were vital to the success of the expedition. He is also one of the authors of the riveting book Ghosts of Everest and its follow-up Detectives on Everest, both of which I highly recommend. Tom Pollard is a filmmaker, explorer, motivational speaker, and host of the podcast The Happiness Quotient. He is also one of the major focuses of the recent National Geographic documentary Lost on Everest. Jochen and Tom, thank you both for joining us at the roundtable tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Good. I'm psyched. Jochen, you were 16 years old and growing up in Germany when you received a book for Christmas about the Mallory Irvin expedition, and you became obsessed with the mystery and wanting to solve it. In retrospect, what do you think it was about this particular mystery that drew you to it? Did you feel you had found kindred spirits in these men, or was it something else? Um, Actually, the answer to that question is fairly simple. It was the mystery. Um, I I had a knack for mysteries and for for real mysteries already back then, and because I was a climber, I was fascinated by mountaineering. That made the the introduction and the approach to that particular mystery somewhat easier. It could have been a completely different mystery, but I simply liked the fact that there's this unexplored, unsolved historical mystery and that you could actually do something about it. And um, that is still the attraction to this day, although I have gained more and different insights over the years. And you were talking about, did I find kindred spirits in those two climbers, Mallory and Irvin? Not at the time, but over the years, um, mm. I found the the human aspect of, behind the mystery uh, more and more interesting, more and more intriguing, dealing with those characters, their motivations, uh, their strengths and weaknesses. Um, that's also a big part of why this Mallory and Irvin mystery is so alluring. Could you give us a brief overview of the research you had done in the years leading up to the 1999 expedition that was so vital to bringing it all together and ultimately to its success? Um, When I look at my research and the work I did prior to the 99 expedition, there's 
only one real aspect that was pivotal in all of this. Um, I, I kept thinking about in the years before the expedition, what can we do to make a search on the mountain somewhat easier? Because for a long time, and that was the time when I got interested in, in the mystery, uh, we had very basic knowledge. It was just that a Chinese climber had found one of the lost climbers back in the 1970s, and it was somewhere around 8,100 meters. So, so I kept thinking, how can we narrow down uh, that search area? And to make a long story short, um, I found a way to pinpoint uh, the high camp from where that Chinese found the body. So my thinking went, if we could get back to that high camp, we could put ourselves in the footsteps of that Chinese um, and maybe rediscover this, this English dead, uh, how he described it. Um, and essentially, uh, this is exactly what happened. Our search team went into the search area. Uh, everybody made his own decision about where exactly to go, but they repeated essentially that 20 to 30 minute walk. Mallory was found within 30 minutes after entering the search area. Uh, so that confirmed that the Chinese camp really was the, the reference point for the search for that particular English dead. I love the detective work you did with the photograph of the Chinese uh, expedition and figuring out the, the mountains that were behind them and then where that might be and pinpointing their camp. That was just, that was amazing. Uh, it, it's I, interesting no one had done that at that point. Yeah, I, I see that as my contribution. I mean, I still think that all of this was a team effort. And um, that was the contribution I could uh, put into the big pot that was the 99 research expedition and everybody who was up there and everybody who was down at base camp uh, contributed in his or her own way. Um, and we were fortunate. We were lucky. We got lucky. And, and that's what strikes me still that on that particular day, May 1st, 99, every, everything seemed to come together. And I, I'm still glad that I was there. Tom, what was your knowledge of the Mallory Irvin mystery before being invited to participate in the 1999 expedition? And could you tell us how you got involved? I had actually very little knowledge of Mallory and Irvin before I was asked to be a cameraman, the high altitude cameraman, believe it or not. I, I knew a lot about the stories of Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing and, and their first ascent. And I had already begun focusing on Mount Everest, but hadn't really considered the North that much. And uh, so I got a call in mid-January, believe it or not, which is fairly close to departure date back then when, when the expeditions were a little bit longer. Um, I got a call from Liesl Clark. She's a producer at NOVA, the PBS science series. And she asked if I'd be interested in being a high altitude cameraman for the expedition. And I, of course, accepted. I had to quit my job and, and literally leave behind a 15-month-old son and, and my wife at the time and our brand new 
home that we had just bought with a with our new our first mortgage and everything. And so so she just gave me the blessing, said, "Go go get them, Tiger." And uh, off I went. And I just thought, well, I better I better read up on Mallory and Irvin so I know what the heck we're really searching for. And then boom, that's when I just kind of dove into it. And Yakin was kind of you know you get assigned people along the way. When we got to Kathmandu, he was my uh, roommate in the hotel that we stayed at. And so I learned a lot from Yachin about Mallory and Irvin, and he had a research manual put together at nine or 11 pages or something. And I dove into that and I still have that research manual now and I treasure it greatly. Part of what makes this mystery so enthralling is that because of the conditions of Everest, the clues have been held in place by the mountain fully preserved for nearly a century the pickaxe, the old camps, oxygen cylinder number nine, even the body of George Mallory, it's gripping and haunting because these are relics, ghosts so to speak, of generations past preserved exactly as they were left on the mountain. Time is literally frozen up there. Jochen, you were the Sherlock Holmes of this whole project, the detective historian, and it's been years of your life meticulously engaged with unanswered questions about the fate of Mallory and Irvin, examining everything from Odell's report to the location of the pickaxe, to the claims of the 1975 Chinese expedition, which we'll talk about in a bit. And Tom, you had been living in the mystery for the past few months and had left your 15-month-year-old son back home, so you had a sort of connection to Mallory's decision-making 75 years before, with you both having children at home during your expeditions. After arriving at Everest, was it surreal to finally be standing there in the midst of the mystery itself? If I may start, um, for me, I mean, this was my first first Himalayan expedition, and it was absolutely amazing. I mean, I I still remember that moment when we drove with our jeeps into the plains of of, of Tingri, and and we had the first view of the mountain, and that was such an such a fulfilling moment. I mean, I had dreamt of that mountain for eleven years, and I had seen it on on hundreds of photographs but i mean nothing beats the real thing and uh it was it is funny i still have a have a very short video clip that our expedition leader eric simonson took in private uh, he he was filming with his his personal video camera and he he virtually caught me maybe half a minute or so after I had my first view of Everest. And and the the emotion is so palpable in, in, in that little video clip. Um, that really was, that there was everything in there, the relief, the, the exultation and, and everything. And yeah, I mean, it's, it was a very, very special moment to see Everest for real for the first time been on one previous 8,000 meter peak expedition and for years had been endeavoring to be a part, if you will, of the community of filmmakers who had the opportunity to film on mountains like Everest. And uh, and so for me, it was very surreal. And I, I was in in some respects, I felt a little bit like a fish out of water. I was with a lot of people I identified greatly with who had committed their life to mountain climbing, and and but but having seen Everest and and this mystery, it all felt very heady to me. 
And in my mind, I thought there's no way in hell we're ever going to find anything. But here I am. I've got a chance to prove myself and, you know, be on the map of, of you know, mountaineering and adventure filmmaking. And, uh, you know, so so for me, it was more of a, a I was trying to finesse my way through relationships that were at times confusing to me but but it was important for me to try to get along with everybody and uh so then Everest shows up in Tingri you get your first view of Everest in in this area where you're on the plains of Tibet and it's it's mind-boggling it's just like it it might as well have somebody been holding up a postcard in front of your face it did not seem real at all to me so I was in a a really odd place and constantly thinking about my son and also having been the exact same age, not to the birthday as George Mallory on his 1924 expedition, 37 years old. So I was like, hmm, let's hope we don't do a little repeat right there. Can you guys both briefly tell us about the day that your team found Mallory's body, beginning with the radio message, which was coded so that other expeditions on the mountain wouldn't catch on to what your team had found? How did it all go down? As you know, I was at base camp uh, at the time, monitoring the the search through the telescope, um, giving them a helping hand with directions and the general search area and so on. And we had agreed on that coded message. And uh, the first code word was Boulder. That uh, meant either Mallory or Irvin was found if, if Boulder was mentioned. But when Conrad Anker uh, actually mentioned uh, Boulder and um, had that message uh, transmitted over the radio the last time I uh, climbed the Boulder problem in in hobnail boots I fell off. Um, <laughs> we we absolutely didn't get it at base camp, <laughs> and uh, then came the second message. Uh, everybody should go down for Snickers and tea, and. By then, something dawned on me down at base camp. And and I remember glancing over at Ned Johnston, our our, um, cameraman, and Liesl Clark, our producer. And I said to them, hang on, didn't Conrad mention Boulder? Didn't he mention Boulder? Uh, That's the code word. (laughs) That's this meme question mark, question mark, question mark. And then I looked through the telescope again, and I, I mean, I had this front uh, front range view uh, on, on the north face. It was perfect clear, and, and I could see everything. I could could even see the, the limbs on, on the members of our search team as they were crossing that slope. And then I saw Andy Pollitz, who had decided to go very high into the search area, Heading down in a beeline for 150 meters or so down to the spot where Conrad Anker was waiting. And I thought, heck, I don't think that anyone would climb down 150 meters of altitude difference at that altitude just for Snickers and tea. There's something going on up there. Then, of course, the whole uh, I mean, I, I still didn't have a clue. I knew, I knew that something was going on and it was potentially something big because the whole search team was waiting and they they um, 
met in this one spot and remained there uh, for two and a half hours. And, and that was it was obvious that something was going on, but I didn't know what it was. And in the evening when they got back to Camp 5, they didn't say a word. Uh, they just said we made it back all right and we had a, had a great day. It was a big day. Still didn't say a word what the big thing was. But then the very last radio call that evening finished with Dave Hahn saying to me, uh, Jochen, you're going to be a happy man. And, and that was the the central message, and by that, I knew either Mallory or Irvin had been found, and, and that was an, an incredible moment. I mean, there, there, is a, there is an audio recording somewhere deep in the files of PBS Nova where you can hear me in the background uh, going, that's it, yes, yes, yes. And immediately after that recording, I went out of the base camp tent, rushed out onto the, the gravel plane and dropped to my knees in front of the mountain and really went, yes! That was an amazing moment. And I, I'm still just astounded that you guys found the, the Maori's body on the very first day. I think that's uh, probably something none of you guys expected. Tom, what was your experience that day? I had uh, the, the coin flip experience of that, the opposite end of the coin, believe it or not. I, we set out at five o'clock pretty much after a radio call down to base camp. I took some photographs and film of Dave Hahn in the radio transmission down to Jochen. And um, as we were moving out of camp five, which is the modern day camp two, I videotaped as the guys kind of walked out of the shot. And um, I believe it was tap, but it might have been Jake asked if I could help them fix their oxygen apparatus because they were having some difficulties with it. So I took my pack off. I, my pack had been off. I helped them with that and uh, kind of got them going, filmed them going way up out of frame. And that was, and so I put my pack on, got what I thought had my oxygen going through my mask on. And it was obviously that something wasn't working. So I just kept going up, figuring, all right, plan B would be if, if I can't make this work, I'll, I'll find them and I'll get up beneath and kind of move my way up into this search as opposed to where I had hoped to kind of leapfrog, which is a classic, you know, cameraman thing. You get, you get your shot as everybody passes and you haul ass up, which is not an easy thing to do in this group of Olympian level athletes that we, that we were there with. And um, so I kept going, kept going, and they were pretty far out of the site. And, and as a side note, um, there were six of us and, but there were only five radios and as it would turn out, I was the one who did not have a radio, which is a pretty short-sighted and probably poor planning. I don't know how that happened. My feeling is if I had had a radio, I would have called Jake or Tapdown, said, give me a hand with my oxygen, and off we would go. So uh, I, I was very, very frustrated that my oxygen wouldn't work. I sat down, tried to fix it, and I said, screw this. I'm going up no matter what. 
And uh, there were no fixed lines. We were using old fixed lines from previous expeditions and years before us. And um, I was I was getting winded big time to to without oxygen to try to catch up to these guys who were on you know a steady flow of O's. And um, interestingly, I I just I I was pretty mad. I was I was almost like yelling up into the the, the gods, like why the frickin' hell is this happening? And uh, it entered my mind that there's a very distinct possibility nothing's going to happen that day anyway. You know, like, come on, we're really going to find somebody up here. And I figure we've got days of searching ahead of us. When this fairly stout gust of wind picked me up when my guard was down and it knocked me back down, you know, falling down the mountain. And I just reached out casually, grabbed the fixed rope, stopped my slide. And then I looked up. And I realized how out of it was that I was. And I swear I had a vision of my 15-month-old son there. And I thought, oh, I, I stood up to get him. And all of a sudden, I was like, this is uh, not my day. I was very, very, very disappointed. So I, uh, I packed it up, went back down to Camp 5, and spent probably two and a half hours there digging up, filled bags of snow, got the stoves ready for the team on their descent. And I boogied down all the way down to advanced base camp and nobody knew where I was. So somehow there was some radio communication that Pollard was missing on this day. And that information made it back home to my family. And my parents had assumed that I had died and my parents were in a state of shock and mourning. And my wife gets a knock on the door from a, from a news reporter. And she's like, that's it. He's going to tell me that he's dead. And they were everybody at home was positive I had been killed that day and had to go to bed that night and wake up and find out the next day that I was actually not dead. Here I am. So anyway, I had a pretty bad day that day, and so did my family at home. Interesting. I'd never shared that story before, so you're the first to hear it. And so, but for, you know, this is kind of a side note, but, but the upside of it, it was like, I felt like I had just missed the most important day other than Ed Hillary and Tenzing summiting in 1953. I felt like I had just missed the most important event in mountaineering history. Well, Mesner soloing without oxygen, that's pretty big too. So, you know, I'm not putting us above some of those accomplishments, but I was devastated. Dev absolutely wrecked. And it and it was it was weeks as we'll get to before I had the opportunity to go back and visit that site. So it was very, very tough day and it set off a whole chain of events for me right there. On that first day, what did your team find on Mallory's body that uncovered new clues about whether or not he and Irvin had summited, as well as clues as to what might have caused their deaths? Very, very brief answer to that. Um, with regard to whether they made it to the summit or not, nothing, nada, niente. There was absolutely no... Uh, real hard evidence to be found on on Mallory that that day whether they summited or not um, with regard to what might have caused their death or Mallory's death um, 
there we had a lot of clues. Uh, there was a broken rope, a broken leg, so he clearly had suffered a fall. So that was very solid evidence. And when we investigated all the artifacts that were brought down, um, what was really interesting was that they found this stack of notes uh, that Mallory had written, and that included um, a note about the equipment they took on the summit climb and uh, also some uh, written columns on a, on a letter envelope. Um, and that showed that they probably had more oxygen available on the summit climb than was previously assumed. Um, that is not a definitive clue that they may have made it to the summit. Uh, but it provides some insights into Mallory's thinking um, and also uh, adds a few very, very interesting hints, so to speak, as to what might have happened on summit day. But again, not really hard evidence, not really hard clue, but it, it fuels the speculation. Tom, I know you and Andy Pulitz went back to the site of Mallory's body a couple weeks after he was found to do a bit more detective work with a metal detector to try to find the camera. And you, I believe, were the only person on the expedition and likewise the only person in the world who saw Mallory's face after 75 years of him being frozen there on the side of Everest. His face had been lodged into rock and ice, and you were the one who loosened it enough to see it for a moment before reinterring the body with rocks. With all due reverence to the matter, can you describe what that experience was like? What did you observe, and did it change your speculations about what had happened to them? Yes, it it it, it was a an amazing day. It was uh, at once uplifting and at the same time very disheartening to be in the presence of this icon of mountaineering, uh, this this hero to at least the Brits, to England, and uh, knowing that he had three children still alive, you know, that grew up not knowing much about their dad. So when Andy and I got to the site of where Mallory lay, I actually stopped about 20 feet away and, and kind of sat down and, and, and Andy started laughing. He was like, I knew it. I knew you were going to have a moral dilemma. I just knew it. And he was really ribbing me. I, I and he's standing there like, what are you going to do? I was like, what right do we have to even, what are, what are we doing here? Like, there's no, we have no business with doing this. And, and he's, and he just let me talk it through. And then, and then yeah, we started to realize like, you know, Mallory traveled around the world to share his, his love of, of this mountain to, to, he went to the Harvard Travelers Club in Boston, and, you know, and, and, and would talk about this passion about this, this beautiful mountain and, and how he wanted to be the first to climb it. And then there, you know, the three children he had and, and a whole family and Irvin's family who knew nothing of what happened to them. And in thinking that through in that moment, I felt I, I, I would be very irresponsible in not doing everything in my power to try to discover what it was that happened to him that day, that both of them that day. So Andy and I got to work, if you will. And, um, and we were aware that, that 
the, because the body had been more or less, and with reverence, it had been encased, in, in mostly his clothing had frozen into the, the surface. We spent a great deal of time trying to get to the place that we could get the metal detector underneath him. And, um, and it was, it was difficult. Like it, the rocks were frozen in and, and, um, we had our oxygen off, our gloves were off. And, uh, at one point in time, just cause the rocks were sharp and, and stuck in the ice, I cut my finger and I, I literally had blood going everywhere all over me. And, um, it was, it, it just thought this is crazy. So I had to tourniquet my finger to continue doing the work. And Andy's like, all right, get down and get down on your back and shimmy under and tell me if you can find the camera and I'll have the metal detector and all. And if you hear a beep, you have to go and reach for the beep, but you know, so I'll, I'm shimmied on my back. Like a mechanic would get like under an automobile. And all of a sudden, almost like a dream there, I was staring into the face of George Lee Mallory. And I, I was stunned and, and shocked and in awe of this great man that was before me and us. And um, Andy said, so what, what do you see? And I told him that uh, his face had no, absolutely no frostbite whatsoever, not even on the tip of his nose, perfectly preserved. Um, however, over his left eye was a literally a hole, a golf ball sized hole had been punctured through his skull and you could see shards of skull. And, um, I couldn't even imagine how something like that could happen other than recalling climbing in the French Alps on many occasions. Uh, you could sometimes hear rocks from far above go by so quickly. It sounded like a ricocheting bullet, like, like, and I've heard stories of rocks going through helmets and killing climbers in, in the Alps. And um, that was the only thought that I had. So moving that forward, it was like, well, if that happened, he suffered very little. And to me, that was why I would go and share that part of the story because it's gruesome in many respects. I opted not to take a photograph of the face, which I regret for scientific purposes, but I don't regret for uh, the purposes of having respect for him. So um, my, my belief was because his body was so far east of the second step, and now I'm assuming that he took that route in this moment, but uh, that there's no way he could have been to the second step up and back down it and made it that far away from the second step. You know, so I, I, I made the conclusion at that time that I didn't believe he or, or Sandy made it to the summit, but it was a, a gripping day, very sobering, a day that I have, there has literally not been a day I haven't thought about it uh, many times, every day it's with me. And I felt uh, truly, truly honored to have the privilege of being that person and, um, I felt like I, I have a, a, a job, a, a, like a mission in a way to try to preserve the, the incredible accomplishments of both of these men, even that I don't believe they made it to the summit. Did I read that you saw yeah. the screws on his face? Wow. Yeah, it looked like probably three or four days stubble, good, legitimate, maybe four day growth. Um, yeah, so 
I never shave. I don't shave now. I always see guys shaving at base camp. I'm like, what are you doing? I like to keep a clean shave. Anyway, Mallory was apparently a shaver because he he did have a few days of stubble. But yeah, I just let the beard go on a trip like that. I want to talk for a moment about Irvin's pickaxe, which was found on a rock slab on the path about 300 meters above and 100 meters horizontal from where Mallory's body was found. And also the snow goggles you guys retrieved from Mallory's pocket and the rope tied around his waist, both clues which pointed to the possibility that he and Irving were descending at nighttime and were perhaps tied to each other so that they wouldn't lose the other in the dark. These seem like big clues. Do you think that one of the climbers fell while attached to the other, then one of them went to try to save the fallen climber? Or do you think the one who had fallen cut the rope to save the other and then continued to fall, but it was too late for both of them at that point? Or did they both tumble down the side of the mountain together and then the rope broke on the way down? What are the most reasonable possibilities or singular possibility that the clues point to? Well, as in so many aspects of of the mystery of Mallory and Irvin, there's no clear answer and no unequivocal answer. Um, What is certain, at the time of the fatal accident, Mallory and Irvin were roped together. And um, it was very probably during that fatal fall, that fatal accident that the rope broke. Um, From the pieces of rope that were recovered, it was very hard to say uh, which piece was actually broken and uh, if one or two of the ends uh, might have been cut, uh, it was really difficult to say. uh, You can't exclude the possibility that the rope was actively cut at some point for whatever reason, either to um, yeah, get away from, from, from a body, from, from one of them who had been killed, uh, or whether it was used to cut off a sling to, to uh, create an abseil anchor. Um, that is really, really hard to say. Um, another um, Problematic aspect is the ice axe of Andrew Irvin that was found up on the ridge at 8,450 meters. Um, It has always been assumed that this was the site of an accident. Uh, Fair enough, it could have been. But the trouble is, um, in that case, Mallory would have fallen 300 meters and half of it over steep cliffs. And his body would not have been in the condition in which he was found if he had done that. So um, the, there is reason to believe that the fatal accident uh, occurred a lot lower down than where Irvin ex, Irvin's ice axe was found. Um, and you could also see in the pictures and the film that was taken and, and Tom saw it firsthand, the, the grooves the rope had uh, pushed into Mallory's body, into his waist. Um, And that would suggest that there was one fall that occurred, the rope broke and Mallory was killed. And that was a rapid succession of events. Um, He could, Mallory probably was not able to, to climb for a longer distance with those rope marks still imprinted in his body. Um, So that raises the question, 
what happened at the ISAAC site? Why was the ISAAC left behind at that particular place? Uh, and where exactly did the fatal accident took place? And that are still questions that are not entirely resolved. Is it possible that years later some climber had found and removed that pickaxe somewhere nearby and then laid it down on the rock slab for an unknown reason in a different location than where it had been found? Not at all, because the pickaxe, Irvin's ice axe, was found in 1933, and that was the next expedition after 1924. There was no expedition in between. So the ice axe must have been left there uh, accidentally or deliberately um, in 1924 to be recovered in 1933. And is it possible that Irvin or Mallory placed it there as a place marker before going to try to help the other? I think um, opinions on that are very divided. Um, and many believe that this must have been the place of an accident. Um, I tend to agree. Uh, I don't think it would have been left behind as some sort of marker because you need your ISEX up there. It's, it's very useful on the way up, on the way down. But others like Noel Odell, they believe that the ISEX was left there, that it must have been left there for some reason. So this is hard to say. But if you ask me personally for my opinion, I, I think that something had happened uh, at that place and very probably on the way down. Is this scenario possible where Mallory could have fallen over the edge of the ridge and was hanging by the rope? Irving could have quickly put down or tossed his ice axe to grip the rope and try to hold Mallory steady, which could explain the rope impressions around Mallory's back. Or Irving could have set down the ice axe to go look at or retrieve something over the ridge, perhaps a mitten, and he fell and Mallory was left holding him up, which gave the rope impressions in his back. And then they both ended up tumbling down the mountain. What, what I can imagine is that an accident took place at the Isaac site and, and the Isaac was lost in that accident, but it was not the fatal accident. They may have fallen for, say, 20 meters, 30 meters, something like that. So they didn't go back to retrieve the ISEX, either because they couldn't do it or they said, hey, this is too complicated. Now we need to get down, uh, leave that ISEX. We still got one. Um, and then they descended further and yes. then they suffered a second accident. And that where the rest of what I explained earlier happened. Uh, the rope broke. Uh, Mallory had got those rope jerk injuries and and he fell down and came to to his final resting place. And what happened to Irvin is hard to say either. He fell down also uh, even farther down to the to the central Rongbuk glacier. Or he survived that accident and tried to to descend on his own. Uh, to the high camp and died of injuries or exhaustion uh, en route to the to the high camp. Uh, there are still uh, possibilities. As you guys know, in 1975, there was a Chinese expedition on Everest, and one of the climbers, Wang Hangboa, had wandered away from their camp for about 20 minutes, during which he found an English body in the near vicinity of the camp, what he called an English dead. He believed that the body had been there for a long time because of its vintage clothes, and according to the translation of Wang's account, the cheek of the corpse had been eaten away by birds. 
Wang first confided this information to a fellow climber a few years later during a 1979 expedition on Everest, but Wang tragically died in an avalanche the very next day, so he was never able to be interviewed to gather further information. That said, is it possible that Wang might have found Mallory's pickaxe and kept it? The information that Wang Hongbao might have found an ice axe near Mallory's body uh, in 1975 is an unconfirmed rumor. And I think it might have been that this was simply a translation mistake because I know the source where this rumor cropped up for the first time, that was back in 2004. I think that was probably a translation mistake that the ISEX that was mentioned in that context uh, was actually a reference to Irwin's ISEX that was found, found so many years earlier. But just in case that rumor uh, proves true uh, that there was indeed an ISEX next to Mallory's body and Wang Hongbao found it, that, of course, is very interesting in itself, because remember what Tom said about the head injury. And there are people who said, well, maybe Mallory was killed by his own ice axe. Um, uh, some people have called this the CSI scenario. But I wouldn't totally rule, rule out this. If Mallory was killed by his ice axe pick and the ice axe was found next to his body by Wang Hongbao, that points to a very interesting uh, aspect. It would mean that when Mallory came and arrested his wall, he still had his ice axe with him and he had it in his hand. And that means he couldn't have fallen far, a, very, a very great distance. So the fatal fall must have occurred very, very low down the mountain, probably just a hundred meters or so above his, his final resting place. And that of course gives a, a completely different scenario to what had happened on the, on the way down. Uh, and of course, you have to explain how Irvin's Isaacs ended up high on the ridge, uh, 200, 300 meters higher. And, and so that is very interesting. But as I said uh, many times now, with so many aspects in the Mallory and Irvin story, there are no clear answers. There are just hints, there are rumors, there are speculations. But that's, that's still interesting. I also wonder if Wang did take Mallory's ice axe, if he could have taken the camera as well. Do you think it was Mallory's or Irvin's body that Wang found? I don't know what, what, what your opinion is, Tom, but um, I think... Uh, in, in all likelihood, Wang found Mallory. Um, because even though there is a discrepancy between what Wang allegedly described, the hole in the cheek, but that was only sign, sign language, Mallory was so close to the 1975 Chinese camp from where Wang found a body and as we found out during our second search expedition in 2001, Mallory is definitely the only old English dead in the vicinity of that camp. Um, I find it highly likely and it would be very logical uh, that Wang came across Mallory's body in 1975 and we simply 
Konrad Enka simply rediscovered it in 1999. Tom, do you agree or do you have a different opinion on what body Wang might have found? No, I, I agree with that. I believe that the hole in the cheek is another translation issue from you know Chinese into Japanese and and even though he might have used sign language and when he said you know he was sleeping um you know he I think that he just didn't have the words to explain it and it does make a lot of sense that he encountered Mallory and there and the thought the idea that maybe he got the ice axe or possibly the camera is is absolutely a possibility and, um, you know, because he had no, there was no backpack there either. Mm. So it's really hard to say what uh, else might have been in that vicinity. Although, you know, you know, from, from 1924 to 1975, there's a lot of rock fall and, and snow and avalanches, I guess, and snow slides, at least in that area. So, um, so anything is really possible, but my gut tells me that it was Mallory for sure that Wang saw. Yokin, I know you went and interviewed members of the 1960 and 1975 Chinese expeditions shortly after returning from discovering Mallory's body in 99. What new clues did you uncover through those interviews? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the big clue really, um, because it was to our complete surprise that when we interviewed the, the members of the 1960 expedition, that one of them, uh, deputy leader Chu Jing, uh, told us that he had seen a dead body high on Everest already in 1960 when he was descending in the first. And we initially wondered if, if he had also found Mallory. So we showed him a picture of, of Mallory, uh, the, the famous picture of Mallory lying face down on the slope. And we also pointed out on an overview of the north face where Mallory was found. And uh, Chu Jing disagreed. He said, no, uh, the body I saw was up on the ridge at, at 8,300, 8,400 meters. Uh, and he, he repeated that several times. He said it's it's in a notch in a ditch high on the ridge. Uh, and he repeated that to me again when I interviewed him a second time uh, six years later, seven years later in Beijing. Um, so the obvious question was, who was this? Um, and there's, of course, uh, the logical conclusion that this could only have been Andrew Irvin, because officially, by 1960, only two people had disappeared that high on the Tibetan side of Everest, and that's Mallory and Irvin. And we now knew where Mallory was. So the other body in a completely different position could only have been Andrew Irvin. <laughs> but of course, there's still this rumor that the Russians had mounted an expedition to the north side of Everest in 1952. <laughs> so uh, I sometimes wondered, well, maybe he found that Russian guy, a Russian guy from that 1952 attempt. But frankly, with what we know, and uh, we absolutely don't know everything about the history of Everest north side, but by what we know, um, if that testimony of Chu Jing is genuine. Um, 
there's a high probability that he saw Andrew Irvin. Mm. And how far away was that from where the pickaxe was found? Um, horizontally, I mean, Chu Jing couldn't really pinpoint the yeah. location. He, he gave an estimate and he said it's about 300 meters away from the, from the first step. And it's uh, uh, some two hours, he said, two hours away. But um, if, if we stick by that 300 meters estimation, it, it would have been about 150 meters of horizontal distance from the ice axe. Um, and the interesting thing is on that line between the ice axe and that alleged resting place of Andrew Irwin, along that line, Jake Norton found an old wool mitten in, in, in 2001 uh, of unknown provenance, but from the material and, and the style of, of that mitten, uh, it seemed a very, very high chance that this was from 1924, from either Mallory or Irvin. Um, this was later investigated and the DNA of three different persons was found in that mitten. Uh, but the trouble is um, we have no way right now to ascertain if, if one of those DNA traces is actually matching Irvin uh, because there's no uh, comparing DNA available from Irvin. Um, they've taken samples of, of letters and so on, but they didn't find any traces of Irvin's DNA. So there's no comparison uh, with that DNA signature that was found on the mitten. So we can't say for sure if this was Mallory or Irvin's mitten, but from the material and style, uh, there's a high chance that it is. So that would mean one climber made it past the Isaac site alive back in 1924 and later lost that mitten, perhaps of hypothermia when you believe that it is warm enough and you can pull off your mitten or he liked to get a better grip on his Isaac or whatever. But uh, it was, was one of those chance discoveries uh, because the mitten was poised right on the edge of the northeast ridge, uh, just just a few few yards away from the Kangshung face, and it ha it had rested there for for seventy seven years, and, and that was amazing. Wow! Yeah, because Maori didn't have gloves on when y'all found him. Correct? He was barehanded. Yeah. Huh, interesting. But but uh, Mallory had lost all gloves and mittens. He had bare hands. Um, and the mitten that was found uh, high on the ridge would have been an intermediate layer, uh, not the outer mittens, not some, some base layer mitten, but an intermediate layer. Tom, you returned to Everest in 2019 on a sequel expedition with Mark Sinat, who was the first person to free solo climb El Capitan in Yosemite National Park a couple years before. And you went back to Everest with this new team to look for Irvin's body, hoping that the camera might still be located. Back 20 years before, experts at Kodak had told you guys that if the camera was found, there was a chance that the film could be developed because of the freezing conditions it had been in for the past century. And the world could finally see if there was a photo of Mallory and Irvin standing atop the summit. 
What was it like for you to go back to look for Irvin's body two decades after you were part of the expedition that found Mallory? At that point, you had experienced years of publicity, interviews, and personal reflection in the wake of that first expedition. So did you feel extra pressure or a heightened sense of expectation on the 2019 expedition? I was thrilled to have the opportunity to go back. And it it started basically when Mark Sinnott attended one of my presentations and he brought his his daughter and one of his sons. And um, he was intrigued with some of the clues that I shared during this presentation and called me a few days later. And he said, hey, so do you think that it would be possible to find Irvin? And I said, yeah, I do, actually. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because another researcher by the name of Tom Holzell, and, you know, as I, I fondly and respectfully call him kind of the mad scientist of the Everest mystery, because he's just this obsessed, highly intellectual. Hey, that was me. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're, you're the young. You're, <laughs> you're just as obsessed as him. This is the crazy. This is the best part of this this whole mystery, it just draws people in. There's like, you cannot extract yourself from it. And the more you learn, the more you want, and it becomes an obsession. And, and the facts that, you know, uh, Jochen has shared with us today, just they're, they're known facts, but you can keep seeing them in different ways. It's, 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 uh, it, it truly gets under your skin and, and becomes a part of who you are, especially having, you know, been there and, and, and whether you, you know, I saw Mallory, but, or held the artifacts from him in base camp, it becomes a part of everything you are. And, and so Mark and I made a, a blood pact, if you will, that we were going to go and try to find what Tom Holzell swore was the GPS location of Sandy Irvin. And I, you know, I know it's crazy. It's like, give me a break. But you know what? It was something to go on and it made sense. It had, it had guts. There was, there was something to it that, that, gave us reason enough to believe that launching an expedition would be worth it. And um, so we went back. I felt no pressure to find him, but, but I'll tell you, and this is where Jochen can, can truly corroborate that. I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a go with your gut kind of guy. And I'm, I'm always trying to connect with something outside of, of facts and figures. And, and for, for years and years and years, I, I felt as though I was haunted almost by the spirit of Sandy Irvin, not haunted, but, but that it was like, I carried him with me in some way. And I would, you know, for years I, I'd go on a hike and I would, you know, hear something or feel something. I'd be like, there he is, you know, he's, he's with me. And it was like, yeah, and this is the Pollard thing where you often knows it's like, you know, I felt like it was my duty or my job to try to set him free. And whether we, and and so for me personally, I felt like Mallory, Mallory was free. I just always had this sense that he was, even though he passed and he had these children and, and family, that somehow Mallory, he was older and was able to, after he died, he was able to escape this earthly realm and go on to the next realm. But I always felt that Sandy was trapped there, 
that that there was this very tragic kind of innocence and this beauty and 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 simplicity of this guy who was you know accompanied this you know elder this person uh, up the mountain and that he was trapped that his spirit was trapped and and I wanted to set him free and um so I didn't care if we found anything there other than I could go and be closer and give it everything to just say it's okay to go. When we went, we had a we had an extraordinary expedition that we had to keep very secret in many respects and Mark Sinnett's book will be out in April where people will be able to read more about it but um the Chinese are are very determined to guard uh, and and protect the fact at least in 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 you know most beliefs that they were the first to summit the mountain from the north and they would not take kindly to people changing history if you will so we kept our our mission very secret and and we had with us now something that didn't exist in 99 we had drones and we spent an inordinate amount of time doing drone flights that that spanned the entire north face from the summit all the way down to about the height of say uh, the north pole and we took all those high definition images and footage and spent days literally days and days pouring through these images blown up as far as we could looking for any evidence of a body uh looking for Mallory again believe it or not we did find a body not one of them but um we figured if we could put uh as much time into looking through these high definition drone images that it would spare us all the time with as they say boots on the ground and um as it would turn out and, and i think people know who've seen the film lost on everest the 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 modern lost on everest um that really sinnet uh left the ropes after the summit uh and went to the spot that it was believed he would find Irvin and found nothing there um so we at least proved that either Holzell was did not have the right spot or at least that if Irvin had been there somebody moved him so um so some you know we have new clues there are new things with this with this expedition and uh my belief is that what even though people will keep going back until the mystery is solved which might be never we feel as though we the the need to go search the north face is 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 no longer i think we we kind of got the final search in there and there was also a discovery expedition up there too who did a vast amount of searching up high which included Jake Norton. How did you feel that the overall experience of Everest had changed from 1999 to the 2019 expedition? How much more crowded is it these days than it was just 20 years ago? The Chinese have done an extraordinary job in limiting overcrowding on the north even though it it indeed is is happening to an extent but they have a much stricter set of guidelines in which they allow people to get permits to climb so you have to have some uh experience either a summit of an 8000 meter peak or a previous summit of mount everest to even get a permit 
And in order to guide on that mountain, to be an outfitter, to, to help support expeditions, you have to have a very strong resume. So unlike in Nepal, pretty much you put a, you know, a, a shingle out and say, I'm, I guide Everest anybody's allowed there for the most part. Now they have some age restrictions and, you know, they don't want amputees anymore or people over the age of 70 or something like that, but pretty much anything goes in Nepal and in China, their, their, their adherence to keeping, uh, they're, they're very, very strong about, um, litter and garbage on the mountain. It was like, it was meticulous there. There was not a wrapper to be seen other than at the very higher camps, there were, you know, abandoned tents, but they're cool with that because they all go back up there and remove all that. But um, believe it or not, in 1999, when we were doing our last trip up uh, May 15th or 14th, I think it was, um, there were so many people coming down from the summit in 99. I, that we never experienced that amount of people high up on the mountain in 2019. It was, it was really well, well orchestrated. And one of the cool things on our last trip up in 2019, the mountain on both sides had been closed. So our expedition, when, when our team mobilized up the mountain from advanced base camp was literally the only group of climbers on the entire mountain. It was like it was like it was as if the way Mallory and Irvin would have experienced it. There was nobody there. It was really, really quite amazing. And then when we went down to base camp, we were literally the only camp in the entire base camp area. So so we waited it out because our goal was no matter what, we were going to avoid any crowding, any rope jams, and and even if it would mean that we would sacrifice our opportunity to get up the mountain. We weren't going to be a part of that. So in so doing, we got the mountain literally to ourselves. It was pretty, pretty amazing. What role does family play in both of your decision-making when climbing? There's already a huge amount of risk by signing up to go in the first place. But once you were there in moments of danger, have there been times when the thought of family has led you to make a different decision than you would have otherwise? Definitely. Um, I mean, I've, I've never been an, an extreme climber and uh, a high risk taker, uh, but I noticed the change. Um, when I was on my fourth Everest trip, I knew that I'd be a father uh, sometime after returning from that expedition. And this definitely uh, influenced my decision making because I felt good on the expedition and I was on the North Col at, at 23,000 feet, uh, 7,000 meter. And I knew that from my, um, my fitness, my stamina and my acclimatization, I could have gone higher. I could have gone probably to camp five, uh, 7,800 meters. And I consciously made the decision not to. Um, I really felt, hey, this is just about a personal altitude record, um, and I don't need to do that. There's one thing that is more important, and that is uh, that my my son uh, needs a father. And um, I think uh, that it is sometimes very hard uh, to to walk that edge between 
personal ambition and responsibility for the family. Um, and sometimes I also believe that you should make a fairly clear cut that um, a certain amount of risk should not be taken uh, once you have a family. Um, yeah. it's, it's not that you shouldn't go climbing or do something like that, but a certain amount of risk taking uh, should be reserved for the time when you are young, um, when you are have no family ties, when you are on your own. And for myself, I feel I feel fortunate. I had this adventurous phase in my life uh, that went on until I was 40. Now I have a family life. <coughs> it's a different adventure, um, but I'm glad to have both. Um, I never saw family as the um, eventual goal of everything in my life. I wanted to have adventure. I wanted to have my expeditions. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad I have both now. Mm, that's well said. Do you think that the thought of family could have caused Mallory to make the decision to turn around before reaching the summit? Could the thought of wife and kids have caused him to decide it wasn't worth the risk? If I may uh, put forward my opinion, um, that's the interesting fact about um, trying to find out what happened in 1924. <clears throat> because I think the more we learn about uh, that particular day, about what happened to Mallory and Irvin, the more uh, we know about um, what kind of characters they had been, truly had been. and. That is uh, one of the, the driving forces that makes me still wanting to explore that mystery because I think the verdict is still, still out there about Mallory. Um, there are a number of people who said, well, who say Mallory, he was obsessed with Everest and um, he would have gone on for the summit no matter what. And I'm not sure if that is true. And if, for, for example, we find evidence that he got very high on the mountain but still turned around, uh, that would be a very powerful message about what kind of person he really was. And I'd like to find more evidence for that sort of message, um, who Mallory really was and what, what did he have to tell the world? about himself and and so that's that's very interesting um i still think we don't know the definitive answer about uh, who mallory was and uh so there's there's plenty of speculation and there's also plenty of projection uh actually because we project in parts our hopes and our our images and our prejudice maybe even uh, onto a person like Mallory. Uh, mm. And sometimes this might actually prevent us from understanding who a person really is. That's a really thoughtful way to frame um, the whole mystery. Y'all can, it's, if he reached the summit, hooray, we're all excited because I read about it and I want him to have reached the summit, him and Irvin, that's my hope. But you just framed it in a way that, you know, if, if he had turned around because of family or thought of family, that reveals something else about or, him. Or of Irvin, his, his younger yeah. partner. 
Yeah. But, but that message goes in the same direction. Was Mallory responsible or was he irresponsible? And and I think the that that question hasn't been answered. Uh, the answer is still up there on the mountain. That's a yeah. very interesting way to frame it. Um, I interviewed Tom Holzell. I obviously know him quite well, but for my I did a podcast episode with Tom and and we talked a little bit about that. And he said, just imagine how different things could have been had Irvin died and Mallory made it and come home. And for the rest of his life, having that burden of having taken this, this young guy and, and mm. you know, in essence, led him to his death on Everest to, for him to be going in, in pursuit of his own dream. And and how how you know kind of breathtakingly painful that would have been. And so when when Tom was saying that, it brought into my thought. It's like, gosh, I you know who knows? Maybe maybe you know in 1996 we saw you know similar uh, you know situations where Rob Hall was was going back to save one of his clients and, and he ultimately passed. Right. So, so we wonder, you know, Mallory, you know, we, we, we rever him as a hero in many respects and, and mourn the passage of these two guys, but um, you know, to really kind of carve away and peel away the layers of, of who and what he and they both were is, is really what makes the mystery even more, you know, intoxicating for me. If we if we talk about the meaning of a of a certain climb, um, I mean I I agree with you, Tom, um, and I mean that that had been my my own view uh, when I when I got into the got hooked to the mystery that that Mallory is kind of a hero, uh, but over the years my my personal view have has changed and and I believe uh, that. Uh, the the even more meaningful climb on nine on the 1924 expedition was the attempt by by Colonel Norton um, and and the interesting thing is and I posed that as a question to his son Edward Norton's son um, mm -hmm. I said you know your father was in a similar position as Mallory was when he was last seen 300 meters a thousand feet from the summit so do you think there's it was just pure chance that Mallory perished and your father uh, returned alive from the mountain. And the answer uh, Edward Norton's son gave me has really intrigued me. He said to me, you know, the difference between Mallory and my father was my father didn't need the summit. Mm. And there's a whole lot of truth in that because mm. Mallory, he had realized that he could use Everest as a springboard for his career, for his very futuristic ideas as a teacher, as a lecturer, as a mm. as a writer, and I mean that that are absolutely understandable reasons. Uh, you feel you need some sort of springboard, um, and the successful ascent of Everest would have pr provided him with that, but. When you make that decision, you become dependent on success and also on the public who understands success 
only in the way of uh, a successful summit. And the difference is with Colonel Norton, and that was what his son told me, Norton saw Everest just as an interesting diversion um, from an otherwise fulfilling, satisfying life as a professional soldier. Um, and I have noticed that in many other climbers. I have lost two fairly close friends due to the fact that they decided they wanted to live not only from, but also for their passion, mountaineering. And the moment they decided to go professional and live only from mountaineering, from climbing, uh, they took higher risks and they died. Mm. I have seen other mountaineers who have a, a perfect, normal, everyday life. And the prime example is, is British climber Mick Fowler, who is a, um, tax, a tax man in real life and nonetheless manages to uh, do all those hard climbs year after year. Um, but I see the points they all have. They don't have this dependency on successful climbs. They can fail on the climb and they return to a regular job and life goes on for them and they don't have that pressure on them. Same goes for Sandy Allen. I'm Richard Nanga Parbat, one of the most amazing Himalayan climbs in the, in the past two decades. And he said, you know, if we had failed on the Mazeno Ridge, nothing would have changed for us. We would have gone back to our regular jobs. Rick Allen, his partner, to his work at Texaco and, and he himself uh, doing mountain guiding and, and rope access work. So they, they absolutely didn't have that pressure. And I think that pressure makes a lot of difference. And, and that, is, uh, that is the question I have about Mallory. How much pressure did he feel on himself? Or did he manage on that final day to shed this, to live in the moment, to just be up there and then decide between his passion for his family and his passion for 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 Everest, for the summit. And mm. I think there is a chance that all the speculation and all the projection uh, we have about Mallory, uh, that he was obsessed with Everest, are totally in vain, are totally useless, that in the end it turned out Mallory was a perfectly sensible man. He had a drive, but he was more like an entrepreneur who just took a high risk because he felt he could win a lot. And in the end, he just had had bad luck. That he just had bad luck. There was no fault in his character. There was no mistake he made. He just had bad luck. Joachim, you were quoted in Ghosts of Everest with saying, your senses are completely alert when you're climbing, hearing, breathing, smelling, everything. And you begin to get a glimpse of how deep the feeling of being alive can really become. You also said that you don't think climbers climb to risk death. You think they climb to prove to themselves that they are not already dead. 
This is a haunting passage when you apply it to the fate of Mallory and Irvin. If they did make it to the summit, in retrospect, do you think they would have believed their achievement was worth giving their lives for to be the first humans to reach the highest point in the world? In Mallory's case, this would have meant sacrificing being in the lives of his children while they were growing up in order to achieve his own personal glory. And in Irvin's case, he was so young and meant sacrificing his entire adult life and perhaps someday marrying and having children, pursuing a career, continuing to enjoy his passion for climbing and inventing. Or in retrospect, lying there in the ice on the side of the mountain dying, do you think they would have given up this hypothetical achievement and glory to return home safely and live long lives with their families and friends? I ask you this question because it's really at the heart of why I believe this mystery is so compelling. And it's at the heart of many moments that explorers, from astronauts to deep sea divers, face while trying to achieve their goals. The simple question is, is it worth it? So Tom and Jochen, if Mallory and Irvin did summon Mount Everest, and if they had known they were going to die immediately after as payment for that achievement, that glory, do you think they would have believed it to have been worth giving their lives for? I couldn't imagine in a million years that that would ever be something I would acquiesce to. So I can't even imagine a human being feeling that way, but I, it's entirely possible. But no, I, cause for me, no, I mean, I've turned around many times. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really, it's really hard to say. I mean, is it worth it? It's, it's always easy to ask this question afterwards and um, without people um, taking the gamble, uh, questioning whether it is worth it or not, and still taking risk. I mean, there would have been no exploration. There would have been no progress. Um, and I think it, in the end, it comes down to the individual decision. Um, I see more of a problem with the general public who often idealizes uh, those risk takers. And, and um, I think that you can also idealize those who said no who said, no, it is not worth it. I'd rather be alive and be with my mm -hmm. family. Those who retreat in time and not who take the gamble, take the high risk, risk everything. Um, but again, um, who am I to judge? I have never been in that uh, environment of extreme climbers taking high risks. Um, I go for the to the mountains for different reasons. It's for me more of a spiritual journey. Um, I go there for the beauty. I go there for the for the quietness, for the solitude, for whatever. I don't need the high risk for that, even though I have tasted it when I was young, when I was in my 20s. And I took high risks then, but I don't take them now. And some people may scoff at me for that, but sooner or later, I don't care. I know what I get from the mountains. Claire Millicon, George Mallory's daughter, who passed away in 2001, wrote the foreword for the book Ghosts of Everest. She was so young when her father disappeared. Were you able to talk with her after you found her father's body? And did the news give her any sense of closure or did it open up new questions for her? How did she respond? Um, I can't, I can't answer that because I didn't talk to her personally. Um, our expedition leader, Eric Simonson, did. And from what I gather from 
what Claire herself wrote in the foreword, I think it brought her some closure. And I can imagine that um, there was this moment apparently when she came to see the snow goggles recovered from her father's body. And she recalled that he had shown her the same goggles when she was a little child. And I can only imagine, because I have done something similar, um, what it means to reconnect with that past. And from my personal experiences, to go back to a place where you have been maybe 30, 40, 50 years earlier, or meet a person that you haven't met for 30 years, I did that just a few weeks ago, can bring tremendous closure. It really closes circles. Um, and it is healing. It is really healing. And I believe that. And I think it was a very, very important moment for Claire, uh, even that late in her life. One of my favorite pieces of lore in the unraveling of the mystery is that Claire said her father always kept a photo of her mother on him to place on the summit of Everest once he reached it. When your team located Mallory's body in 1999, you found letters from family and friends in his pockets, but there was no photo of his wife. This led Mallory's daughter, Claire, to suspect that her father may have reached the summit after all and left the photo there. So the ultimate question for you both, a question that would alter the history of exploration if it's ever answered with hard evidence, what is your personal suspicion or instinct regarding whether or not Mallory and Irvin summited Everest before they perished? And has your suspicion changed through the years or remain the same? My, my belief is that they did not make it to the summit, and, uh, but it does in no way diminish the incredible accomplishment of what they were endeavoring to do. They were seen at least up on the ridge. We don't know exactly where based on the report of them being seen uh, on the day they passed, but uh, they, they certainly accomplished something, you know, monumental. And, and for that alone, it should be recognized, not based on whether they summited or not, but, but because of the location of, of Mallory's body so far East from the not only the summit but the second step which is where i the route i believe they took uh i can't imagine that they made it up the second step to the summit and back down the second step which is to me where their bodies would be below that had they gone up and over the second step um so i i i, I loathe to admit it but I, I don't think they made it I agree with Tom on, on many points. Um, I also think it is uh, very, very probable that they didn't make it. Um, I think there would have been a very, very slight chance still that, that they made it, but that very much depends where they were last seen. What, what I disagree with, not with Tom, but with uh, a lot of other researchers is um, I'm not sure whether they really failed at the second step because I'm not sure whether they really attempted the second step. Um, I think there's a chance that they went a completely different way. So I believe if, if you want to have a, have a firm opinion, 
I don't think they made it, but I believe there's a chance that they got very high on the mountain. And I'd like to find out how high they got, not for the historical record alone, for reconstructing the events of June 8th, 1924, but in order to find out who Mallory and Irvin really were, what kind of persons they really were. If we find evidence that they got very high on the mountain, but still turned around, that would change our perception of Mallory as being single-mindedly obsessed with Everest. Um, and that would be very satisfying if that be the answer in the end of all this quest for solving the mystery of Mallory and Irvin. Jochen, are you working on any new books, essays, or articles at the moment? Um, I do. Uh, I'm currently translating the excellent book Winter 8000 by Bernadette McDonald's about uh, the first winter ascents of all the 8000 meter peaks. Um, I have an article uh, in, in preparation for the 100th anniversary of the 1921 Mount Everest reconnaissance. So that's what I'm I'm doing right now. Tom, could you tell us a little bit about your podcast, The Happiness Quotient, and what inspired you to create it? Yeah, so the, the podcast is called The Happiness Quotient. And uh, as I was packing for Everest in 2019, a good friend of mine stopped by and, and he goes, man, you should have a podcast. And I said, what the, I, I had never even listened to a podcast. And I said, why and why would anybody listen? And he says, you know, I've known you my entire life. And I would sit around a campfire and listen to you spin tales any day. Just do it. Open your mouth and start talking. So something that bugged me just enough to, to begin. And I did the podcast initially with the idea that it was going to be purely about adventure, about Mount Everest, about telling the story of Mallory and Irvin and the people I had met along the way. But as time went on, it kind of expanded to this idea of, of how humans endeavor to kind of peel away the, the truth of life, which is really has a lot of suffering and tragedy in it. I mean, we all die, right? So it's, you know, so with the idea that when to talk to people in this podcast who have followed their heart's desire to go after what they know is in their heart, despite the collateral damage that one might find when pursuing a career as a musician or as a mountain climber. And so I thought in so doing, I might inspire one or more listeners to look deep into their own hearts so that they too would have the courage and inspiration to go pursue the truth of their heart. So that's it. That's the happiness quotient. Lastly, do each of you have a book, film, or documentary recommendation, something that our listeners can dive into beyond this episode? I can only pass the torch and recommend uh, the films and, and the forthcoming book of Tom's expedition, The Third Pole by Mark Sinnott. Should be an excellent read. I've, I've read it already. Um, besides that, there are, of course, my, my own books still that are around, Ghosts of Everest and the uh, sequel, Detectives on Everest. Uh, for those who speak German, there's a third volume, uh, 
Tatort Mount Everest, Crime Scene Mount Everest. Um, and if people want to look at, at YouTube or something like that, there are still a lot of the documentaries around of those research expeditions. We have lost on Everest in 99. We have lost on Everest in 2019. Um, we have found on Everest about the 2001 expedition. We have first on Everest about our 2010 expedition. And we have the Sherpa's Quest about 2011 expedition so plenty of stuff to to look out for and plenty of stuff to enjoy yeah i'd say um certainly jochen's books are are magnificent uh ways to familiarize oneself with the mystery it's it's a it's a it not only is it a great book to read in terms of entertainment but it's got every tidbit of information you could ever want and um i also have had the the privilege of reading Mark Sinnott's forthcoming book, uh, The Third Pole, as well. And I feel that there is information and material in that book that could definitively change what a lot of people think happened. And um, it's toward the end of the book, so you're going to have to read the whole thing. But not unlike Wade Davis's book, Into the Silence, it's exhaustively researched and it's a it's a darn good page turner of a read that that also talks about the day that Everest broke the the tragic day uh, in 2019 when so many people lost their lives. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a plethora of great resources, but I'd say those books right there are the way to go. Well, um, to finish this, I'd I'd like to give a nod also to the to the guy who started it all. I mean, there's still the original book from 1986. Uh, Tom Holzell and Audrey Salkeld, The Mystery of Mallory and Irvin. Absolutely. That started, that started it for me. That's um, right. Still those many years on, it's it's a fascinating read, a groundbreaking work. Um, whether you agree with the conclusions or not doesn't matter. I mean, it's just this kind of pioneering work. Uh, same with Audrey Salkeld's People in High Places, those two starters um it's 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 really the 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 starter drug in all yeah. of this yeah he lit the torch and and has carried it ever since so there's no doubt the mystery of Mallory and Irvin is 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 ubiquitous enough that that you have to actually say they're the ones Tom Holzell can is the guy who said the mystery of Mallory and Irvin we just say it but that's where it all started. So, so yeah, he's the he and Audrey Salkeld were the they lit the torch and have been shining. I always liked the the coincidence that the the original article that Tom Hosell wrote for for the British Mountain Magazine that that got the ball rolling is from 1971, and that's the year when I was born. To all you listeners, you can find a plethora of information about the Mallory Irvin mystery online, at your local bookstore or library, and in various documentaries. You can read more about Jochen and his research at jochenhemlib.com, and you can read about Tom and his podcast, The Happiness Quotient, at eyesopenproductions.com. I also highly recommend reading Ghosts of Everest about the 1999 expedition, and then watching Lost on Everest that follows the sequel expedition in 2019. 
Jochen and Tom, thank you both for taking the time to be with us here at the roundtable tonight. It was an absolute honor and thrill, and I wish you both the best in all your endeavors of exploration. Right on. Thank you. Hey, thank you. And Jochen, I'll be calling you soon, my brother. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at The Explorer's Roundtable. The Explorer's Roundtable was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com.